It is a holiday weekend, believe it or not. It, uh, someone had to remind me of that. So, um, I, I, is there school tomorrow? No. In Henrico, there is, right? Isn't there in Henrico? No. In Chesterfield. Where's Ann Long? Emily, is there school tomorrow in Chesterfield? There is, okay. Not a holiday in Chesterfield, sad, uh, but it is over here in Henrico. So, um, <clears throat> you know, what can I say? Anyway, that's some silliness. So um, I, w- I want to uh, do something different this morning. We're going to depart from what you see in the bulletin. And uh, uh, yeah, we're going to depart from that because it's um, uh, the as we've done this liturgy project this year, as we come to this text today, one of, one of my favorite texts uh, in the Old Testament, I, I didn't like the way it was divided up. And so uh, we're going to, rather than um, read what's in the bulletin, uh, I'm going to read to you. Now, it may not always be so clear, but we are a Presbyterian church. And as such, we have a thing called a confession. And our confession is a summary of the things that we believe that the Bible teaches. And one of the things that our confession tells us, rightly so, based on what the Bible says, is that God has these things called means of grace, which are roads, pathways, that the grace of God comes to us. One is the fellowship of believers, the fact that we're gathered here together as the people of God. That in and of itself, the fellowship that we share with one another, is one of the ways God's grace gets to us. We sing. We participate together. We take the Lord's Supper. Those are all ways in which uh, the Lord's grace comes to us. Now, uh, and certainly, weirdly, and, you know, probably frustratingly for us, preaching is one of the ways God's word comes to us. But also, also, our confession tells us that simply reading and hearing the Bible is a means of God's grace. Now, I know the power of being read to because my wife is a first grade teacher. And I know that when she gathers her students around her and she reads to them, for the most part, their hearts and minds are enraptured and captured. It's a very powerful thing for them, right? Somewhere along the line in our maturing and our growing up, we miss, we lose the power of being read to. And that's really unfortunate. Um, And so uh, one of the things that I want to do this morning uh, as we look at this text is I want to to read to you uh, uh, simply this whole chapter from uh, 2 Kings uh, chapter 5. it's it's a it's a pretty profound story. Now, let me also say at the outset, as I read this story to you, that one of the things one of the things that happens to people like us in our day and age and in our culture is we hear a story like this and it begins to come to us like a fairy tale, because we're going to read about uh, uh, 
people with leprosy being healed and a prophet who witnesses something that happens miles away and he knows exactly what happens even as it's happening and confronts someone about it. And so so we can read that and we can think about that and it kind of comes to us as um, as a fairy tale. And the reason for that is, and one of the reasons why I want to read this text and take the time this morning to do this and to slow you down and to help us all to pay attention is because of the way we view the world. You and I view the world in, in what I would say is a kind of naturalistic way. My default when something happens around me or I see something is not, there's God at work, but let me offer a rational explanation for what happened. For example, if, I've, if you've heard me use this example before, you need to hear it again because it's a good example. In the summertime, when it rains, if it rains, remember rain? When it rains, often at the end of the rainstorm, we look outside and we see a rainbow. And if you're like me, when you see a rainbow, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, yeah, I remember third grade science. That's the, the light of the sun being refracted through the water, and it shows the spectrum of colors. That's what it is. And then after I think that, I think, wait. When Noah got off the ark, God put a bow in the sky. Isn't that sweet? We had a rainbow uh, Noah's Ark nursery when our kids were little, which is kind of terrifying if you think about it, (laughs) Uh, because that old story is about destruction of the world. We don't think when we see a rainbow in the sky that there's a reminder of God's covenant with me that he has promised never to destroy the earth by water. But more than that, when we look into the sky, we see God's bow. It's a bow, not a rainbow, a bow, like the kind you put an arrow in and you shoot. And which direction is that bow pointed? Not towards the earth, It's pointed towards God so that any destruction due us now falls on him. And so it's a reminder to us that God speaks to us and he's at work in our world and that he dominates and is in and through all that happens around us. But as Kevin's already mentioned and prayed this morning, that that the, the fact is, unless God opens us up to see and to hear and to know we miss the grace of God and we tend to settle into a kind of rationalistic unbelief. Because that seems sophisticated. That seems smart. But what I'm here to tell you this morning is, as we read this text, as we read earlier in this, this uh, service, the text of Jesus healing the ten lepers, that this God who heals this Naaman, who healed the ten lepers, is the same God who's at work and alive in our world today. And his intention to bless and to save, his intention to bring about his rule in every place, 
is still the same. And he still speaks and he still works and he is still alive in the world in which we live. And so in light of that, let me pray. And then I'm going to read to you 2 Kings chapter 5, the the whole chapter, uh, and then we'll draw uh, some points out of that this morning. Let me pray. Father, we come to you today as people who are easily distracted. Well, not easily distracted. We're just distracted. Uh, And frankly, uh, we prefer the distraction often. um, And we would give ourselves to it. Thank you that you bear with us, that you are a long-suffering God, and that you come and you pursue us. As we read this story of your healing power, of your salvation to the most undeserving of us, I pray that you would bless us, you'd help us, because without your help, without your life, without your spirit, we're dead. And so take these words that we read here this morning and root them uh, into our hearts and minds. And Lord, I pray that as a result of us reading And being here today, you would change us for your glory, for our good. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 27. This is the word of God, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Now, it's something to note right there that the God of Israel had given victory to Israel's enemies through this man, Naaman. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the little girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, and a talent is about 75 pounds. So 750 pounds of silver. Uh, Spot price on silver Friday when I looked was about $17 or so an ounce. I didn't bother with gold. It's a lot, like 12 to 1,500, somewhere floats around in there, right, per ounce. So this is a lot of money, a lot, right? So uh, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends words to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider And see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Now just imagine that. 
Okay? Here's Naaman with all of those pack animals, all of his military stuff. It's like, it's as if, you know, somebody pulls up in front of your house with some Bradley fighting vehicles and some tanks and some Humvees full of gold. You know, the neighbors are looking, right? They're pulling the curtains aside and saying, what is happening at Elisha's house, right? And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not the Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Can I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and he said, behold, I know that there's no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth from now on, your servant will, will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. That's, remember, to uh, uh, he's taking some of the, uh, the land, the promised land with him to use in his own uh, uh, yard, in his own house, to build an altar uh, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. And in this matter... May the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, that is the king of Syria, goes into the house of Remen, that's their false god, to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Remen. When I bow myself in the house of Remen, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men, Of the sons of the prophets, please give them a talent of silver and two festal garments. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up the two talents of silver in in two bags with two festal garments and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent them in a way and they departed. He went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. Now, you can't go nowhere. Just parents, as a, as a word to you, when you ask your child where they went, they say, I didn't go anywhere. That, that's impossible. If you went, you went somewhere, right? I didn't. It's like, did you do something? I didn't do anything. Wait, what? But he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? 
Was it a time to accept money and garments, oil, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Now, Gehazi just went and got some silver, but Elisha sees into his heart and sees that he wants to take that money and get him some orchards and some vineyards, some sheep and oxen and some servants. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. So here's the thing. So as we read earlier in the service about Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, and he's met by 10 lepers, right? And uh, he, uh, uh, they cry out to him for mercy. He heals the lepers. And one, the Samaritan, comes back and thanks him, right? And so we see here in this text uh, 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 someone almost as uh, or probably more unacceptable than a Samaritan, a Syrian, an idol worshiping pagan. And not only that, an idol worshiping pagan who is an oppressor uh, of the people of God uh, comes and needs healing and God heals him. And as a result of that healing, he expresses thanksgiving. So clearly, one of the things that you could see that the curators of the liturgy today want us to think about thankfulness. Now, uh, this this passage that we read earlier of the, the ten lepers is one of those stories that makes me anxious. It makes me nervous. Uh, and it makes me nervous because I am so forgetful about thanking people. When I was a kid, my one of the things my parents drilled into my head, and it's still in there, it's still banging around, is if someone brought me home from football practice or somebody did something for me, their first question to me was, did you thank them? Because if you didn't thank them, you really wished you had thanked them. <laughs> if, if you hadn't thanked them, then you were in deep weeds, super deep weeds, right? And so I remember sitting in the back seat of cars, being driven home from football practice, thinking, remember to thank, remember to thank, remember to thank. And then then I would think, I'm remembering it right now. Maybe I should just say thank you right now. Would that be awkward? What Would that, would that be weird? I'm thinking about it right now. At least I can get it out now, and that way I can check that off my list, right? So I don't have to face mom when I get home and say, I didn't, I didn't thank, or I'll, be, or I'll just lie. Yeah, I thanked him. Leave me alone. Uh, but she would go behind me and check. Did Steve thank you? Yeah. So the so the so the reality of, of this is, I I am certain, I have no doubt whatsoever that you are often ungrateful. You and I are often forgetful to be thankful. And it's interesting, right? In this text and in the text we read from the New Testament, it is the person who is furthest away from the people of God who ends up being the most thankful, right? Here it is a Samaritan far away from the people of God. He's the one who comes back and thanks. It's Naaman, the Syrian, who comes back and thanks God. Now, here's here's the thing about that is one one of the reasons why I think that is, is the work of God in their lives, the healing, the grace, the mercy, the power that's extended to them uh, because they're new, because they're outside of the people of God, because, you know, they're they're not like us, that we're used to the grace of God, are quick to be thankful and quick to express that thanksgiving. Uh, those of us who uh, are people who've known God forever and and walked with him forever and we we know all of the Bible passages and the stories, it's not something that usually falls to us where we wake up in the morning and say, thank you, Lord, your mercies are new every morning. Thank you for breath. 
Thank you for food. Thank you for a roof over my head. Thank you for eternal life. Because we've grown used to the, we're awash in blessings. And yet we forget where they come from and their nature to us is grace. When uh, years ago we adopted a family that we were caring for and uh, one weekend we, um, we had the kids, they had little kids like our kids when our kids were little, over to the house for the weekend. They were going to spend the night. We brought them into the house. They'd never been to our house before and they walked in, they walked around the downstairs of our house and they walked by the stairwell and one of the little girls looked at me and said, who lives up there? Because they couldn't imagine anybody in the world having this much space, right? Well, my middle child, being the robust uh, young man that he was, like, well, that's our bedrooms up there. But you know what? I'll do you better than that. We got another floor above that. It's my playroom. Now, you know, I was like, I wish he'd be grateful for his playroom. I wish, you know, I wish, but it never occurred to him and it certainly never occurred to our children that, wow, you know, all of these things are blessings from God. It's just what we were used to. It's just what they were used to. It never occurred to them until someone comes in the house and says, you know, I can't imagine that not only do you have this ground floor, but you have a floor above that. And even more than that, you have a floor above that. Right? So so it's a it's a a reminder to me and a challenge to me that uh, God's grace, as much as I talk about it, as much as I think about it and as much as I tell myself, I lean on it uh, and desire it in my life. It's not very fresh. It doesn't seem very new. It seems old, stale and just kind of there. Because I'm so overwhelmed by all the other things in life that I miss the fact that this God is for me all the time. So it's a good place for us to start this morning to note that the two people in the stories we've read today who are furthest from the people of God exercise the most gratefulness. I don't want you to resolve to be more thankful because that'll last you 48, 72 hours. I do want you to ask God to open your eyes to see how he's blessed you and to see his grace and to see the wonderful things that he has done, he is doing, and he will do for you, right? But the story, I think, has much more to say to us than just a a parable, a story about uh, thankfulness and gratefulness. There's a couple of other things here that we need to draw out. Uh, one of the things to note uh, in this text is uh, this little girl, right? We read here, the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife, right? Now, you got to understand who Naaman is. Naaman is like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's he's like the, he would be like the, in our culture, in our day, he'd be like the head of the army uh, in North Korea, or the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Somebody totally unacceptable. An enemy. And a powerful enemy. More powerful than we are. 
Somebody who uh, uh, is uh, that uh, he doesn't even know it, but his power and his success has been given to him by God as God is working with and trying to challenge his own people. So this Naaman has been greatly successful, greatly feared. And in one of his raids where he goes into Israel and he kidnaps people and he takes them and he brings them back and he makes them slaves to the Syrians, he brought back a little girl to help his wife. And this little girl, unnamed, is what God uses to shift, to change, and to dramatically reorient international issues and relations. I am amazed and I am always stunned by how much you and I spend our time and energy grasping after, striving after impact and influence. To be among the influencers to be among those who make decisions. What is it the um, from Hamilton? I want to be in the room when they're making the decisions, right? I want to be in the room, right? I want to be in the room. Well, what if being in the room means getting carried off from your home, kidnapped, sold into slavery, basically, put in, you know, working for uh, idol-worshiping pagans, and that you, by showing grace to your sworn enemy and your oppressor, unnamed, we don't even know who this little girl is, changes so much. Are you grasping after influence and impact? God uses unnamed slave girls as ministers, as change agents, as influencers, doesn't he? And so as we, as we see this, you know, here are these, all these powerful people, uh, but the means whereby God uses to get salvation, healing to Naaman comes through a little girl who loves her enemy, right? Secondly, the other thing that we notice about this is that there's grace in this, this text for all. You do, uh, and, and if you're, um, if you are uh, uh, an Israelite, if you're reading this story and you're coming at it, your anxiety is beginning to build as you read through this story because what you know about your God is that he is frustratingly gracious and that he is frustratingly merciful and that he is always showing grace and mercy to the undeserving, right? I mean, after all, that's what the whole book of Jonah is about, right? When Jonah uh, gets angry at God and God says, why are you so mad? Jonah says, hey, you're this kind of new. I don't want to go to Nineveh and preach to them because you're always forgiving people. You're always being merciful to people. Would you stop it? Particularly to those people. You're always like that. Well, if you're reading the story, you're thinking, oh, no, God is going to do something gracious to Naaman. God is going to bless him. God is going to heal him. He's so like that. It's so frustrating. Why can't he do something else? Right? Well, the fact is that God's grace, uh, God is sovereign in his grace, and he gives his grace to who he will and as he will. 
And you and I have very little say in that. And so if God wants to win the most wicked, evil person imaginable, he will do it and make them one of his own. And so, so the grace of God is that wide. It spans. There is, there's no, there's no sinner out there uh, that God can't reach and change and heal. Especially those that come to the end of their rope and in desperation have nowhere else to go, right? Thirdly, one of the things that I love about this story is I love Naaman's reaction. You know, he makes this big show. He goes to uh, Samaria. He goes to the, to the king of Israel's house and he's like, Hey, I got this letter from my king. You're supposed to heal me. And the guy's like, Well, I can't do that. Elisha says, Well, I'll heal him. And so he makes this big show coming up to Elisha's house and he's expecting, you know, the red carpet to be rolled out for him. Elisha to come out there, see all his wealth, see all his power, say some mumbo jumbo, run his hand over the, the spots and he'd be healed. Elisha doesn't even go out to see him. He stays in the house. He sends a messenger out and says, tell him to go dip himself in the Jordan River and he'll get healed. And Naaman's like, first of all, all the rivers in Syria are better than these lame rivers. And secondly, he can't even come out here and talk to me. I'm done. I'm leaving. I've had it. I'm walking. Isn't it crazy? Not only does God reach, not only does God's grace reach the people that we think are most unlikely and, and the worst people for him to reach, but his means of salvation, so silly, death, submission, poverty, weakness, it's foolish, isn't it? That God would save in that way. And yet in his economy, that's exactly how the gospel comes to us. Jesus enters our world in the weakness of our flesh and the weakness of a baby under the power of sin and death and the law. And it crushes him for us so that we might receive healing. Right? There's a lot of foolishness in that. It's probably not how we would do it. Right? Next slide. And so what happens here is that when Naaman realizes he has been saved, once he realizes he's been healed, that there really is a God, that he knows that there's a God, only one God, and this God is in Israel, and that this God's power is big enough to extend even to Syrian bigwigs like him, he's changed. He recognizes what's happened, and he's not just going to take the God of Israel and put him up on you know, his shelf in his house and say, well, there's one of my gods. No, this is his God. He's the only God. And so he is going to take uh, part of the promised land back with him. He's going to build an altar and he's going to worship this God. It, it, it leads to a transformation. His whole worldview is turned upside down. Now, maybe at this point in the story, you begin to get a little troubled, right? Because isn't it weird? Like, why isn't it? Why isn't it that Naaman then decide jump ship? Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he become a traitor to the Syrians and join Israel? Well, uh, maybe Israel's not that great. <laughs> and, and maybe, maybe he's probably in as good a company among the pagans there in Syria as he is among God's people there in Israel. 
Nevertheless, he's changed and he will be changed forever, right? And and one of the things that's really interesting to this is he realizes in the midst of this that as he goes back and when he has state occasions where he has to go with the king into their temple and worship this God, Remen, he wants God to know, like, when I go in there with the king and the king's leaning on me, look, I'm not worshiping Remen, I'm worshiping the Lord. Can I get some, God, can you forgive me? Can you be gracious to me in that? Now, we read that and we think, well, why isn't it that that something doesn't happen there? Why why doesn't God say to him, "No, you can't do that. You have to we have you have to change." Well, for whatever reason, in this case, God is choosing to be merciful to Naaman to allow him to do that because he sees what's going on in Naaman's heart and he understands the nature of his position that he's kind of stuck and that where he is and who he is, this is what he has to do and yet God sees his heart. And sees what's really going on there. And God's merciful and gracious to him. You may be stuck today. But the fact is, God sees that he's merciful. He cares for us. And he is at work even in the midst of that in our hearts and lives. And then lastly, this crazy situation with Elisha's servant. Because he sees all that gold out there. He sees all that silver. He sees all those clothes. And he thinks, you know, wow, wow. We had this opportunity to be rich (laughs) and not only to be rich, but even to impoverish our enemies a little bit. And that Elisha, let it go. I'm going to go get some of that. I'm going to go get me some of that silver. I'm going to go get me some of those clothes. And so he goes and he lies to Naaman to get some of that stuff back. And Elisha sees him. And isn't it interesting, right? Because Naaman, the Syrian, who's far from God, probably knows very little about the God of the Old Testament, very little of the God of Israel, yet he ends up being a follower and Gehazi is swept away. Somebody who spends his time serving uh, the prophet is swept away by his greed. Listen, you cannot buy salvation and healing, but you can buy your own destruction with your money. You can Right. The desire for money is an overwhelming uh, thing that just sweeps us into all sorts of crazy, destructive behavior. Right. And so Gehazi is caught up in that. And ironically, in the end, right, the Syrian is a much more faithful person, someone who appreciates and understands the grace of God, even more so than the servant of the prophet. So I, I, I think today as we come at this, as we think about this, this is a, it's a good, good reminder to us of the fact that God's grace extends widely to all, but it also extends deeply. It's not only wide to who it reaches, but how deep it reaches into our hearts and our lives. Hear, hear these words of institution. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus. They did as he had directed them and prepared the Passover. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. 
Let's confess our sins together by using this uh, prayer of confession that's uh, printed in the bulletin, also on the screens behind me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Father, we have sinned against heaven and against you. We are not worthy to be called your children. We humble ourselves before you. O Lord, heal us from all our infirmities. Take away our uncleanness from us and renew us with your purifying spirit. Amen. Believer, hear these words of encouragement. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior.